In, uh, in 1987, there was a very popular uh, song that topped the charts in America performed by the Irish rock band U2. The title of the song was, I Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For. And many of you know that song so well, you could come up here and sing it word for word. And I'm mentioning that song because it fits in very well with our topic for today. We're gonna to talk about contentment. You see, I believe that this song is a very accurate anthem of the human condition. Here are some of the lyrics. I have climbed the highest mountain. I've run through the fields. I have run, I have crawled, I have scaled these city walls, but I still haven't found what I'm looking for. This is the mindset of our age always looking for something new, something that we have yet to attain. But it's a mindset that honestly lacks contentment because it's never satisfied. And even when you get what you want, guess what? You want more. You see, to find contentment in life is a highly prized thing, and yet seldom will it be seen. It will be a virtue that will be elusive to so many of us. I believe if you ask most people in the world today what they thought about their life and where they are at this moment, their answer could very well be, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Because it always has to be a, a better job, a faster car, a bigger home, a fatter wallet. The list goes on and on and on. And yet the human condition is such that the more we attain, guess what? The more we want. It seems that contentment is a nice theory, and yet it is something that few will ever experience. Now, going back to this rock band, U2, I've read many articles and I've seen many interviews with the members of this band, and I discovered that they all have Christian roots. In fact, they played in worship band at their church, so they know about Jesus. I assume that they've even experienced him in some way based upon some of the things that they have been quoted as saying. And you will often find evidence of this in the lyrics of not only this song, but other of their songs, because this song goes on to say in the last verse, I believe in kingdom come. Then all the colors will bleed into one. Well, yes, I'm still running. You broke the bonds, you loosed the chains, you carried the cross of my shame. You know I believe it. But I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Those lyrics were sounding really good to me right up until that last statement, weren't they? But they make very clear that true contentment is lacking. And so today as we continue in our series called Live Strong, which is our study in the book of Philippians, the Apostle Paul addresses this topic this frame of mind, this, this level of life called contentment. So I want you to turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter four. If you don't have a Bible, uh, it will be up on the screen behind me and you can follow along. Philippians chapter four, we will be reading verses 10 through 13. And I'm gonna be reading from the New King James Version today. Philippians four, verses 10 through 13. The Apostle Paul writes, but I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but lacked the opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased. I know how to abound. 
The NIV version says, I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. If, I were to, if you were to ask people on the street what their definition of true contentment was, you would get a wide variety of answers. So I decided to go to dictionary.com and see what they had to say. And here's what I found. The state of being contented. <laughs> that was a lot of help, wasn't it? I was always taught you never put the word in the definition of what you're defining. But it was a law, it was a rule, but they broke the law. But it also went on to say satisfaction and peace of mind. Those are both positive words we can all relate to, can't we? But what I wanna to propose to you this morning is something that I believe with all my heart. I don't believe that contentment is at all possible in the life of someone who doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't believe it is an, an, an attainable state for any non-believer because our carnal nature is naturally dissatisfied. It always wants something more. And as I thought deeply about this, there's a question dying to be asked regarding this thing we call contentment. Why, after finding Jesus Christ, do some Christians still lack contentment? I mean, if I were to ask you to categorize your current state, your current, life, your current life's condition, would you say that it was one of complete contentment? I know some of you would say, absolutely yes, Pastor David, I can say that. But then I believe others would say, honestly, no, I cannot say that. No, I am not fully content. I've never been content. I have yet to achieve the goals that I have established for myself. I have yet to reach the financial plateaus that I have been working towards. It is still eluding me. I'm just not satisfied. Well, today, we're gonna to go once again to the Apostle Paul as our guide because he has found contentment even in extreme circumstances. Let's go back to our scripture in Philippians 4, and we're gonna dig a little bit deeper and find out where Paul is coming from as he wrote these words. Philippians 4.10, but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but lacked opportunity. In these words to his church, that, that he wrote to the church in Philippi, Paul expresses his appreciation for the support that the church has provided him. It appears that they were now able to provide some financial resources, whereas previously they were unable to do so. He's saying here that it wasn't that you didn't care for me, it's just you didn't have the ability or the capacity to do so. This could mean that they lacked the financial resources to help him, or perhaps they lacked a messenger that they could send the funds on through to him. But whatever the reason, Paul is thanking them that they are now able to do so, to help support his ministry in a financial way. And probably at a most crucial time. Because remember, Paul is writing to them as a Roman prisoner. He is experiencing deplorable conditions in prison. I want you to get out of your mind the modern day prison system with three square meals a day, fresh running water, exercise, and a bed. It was nothing like that. What Paul was experiencing was darkness and, and cold and hunger 
and filthy living conditions. And if not for friends and family in those days to come and provide for the prisoners, there would not be enough water or food to sustain their life. This was no country club, ladies and gentlemen. It was about as bad as it could get. So one can totally understand Paul's newfound appreciation for this church while he's in prison. He goes on in verse 11 and 12 to say, not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased. I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. He's saying here that he has lived in affluence and he has also lived in lowly, humble, and even degrading conditions. And it's very important for me to mention here that before his Damascus Road experience, Paul, then known as Saul, knew what it was to be affluent. He knew what it was like to be esteemed. He was the Jew of the Jews. He was educated at the feet of Gamaliel, a very well-respected Jewish rabbi. And he was elevated to religious leadership. In fact, he excelled far above any of his age. In the book of Galatians, it tells us that his position as a Jewish leader, religious leader, brought great monetary rewards. Historical records show us that if you were a Pharisee, with his kind of a pedigree, you made an incredible income. Now, when Paul said in Galatians that he profited in the Jewish religion above many of his equals, he was also speaking not just of the, the goods and the finances, he was always also speaking of religious esteem. Affluence was his station in life. Yet when we come to Philippians uh, chapter three, verse seven, this is what he says. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. And then of course he writes earlier in Philippians 3, eight, or later in the, the next chapter, he says, yet indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I might gain Christ. So here he is in prison with nothing. He is hungry, he is cold, he's chained to a Roman soldier 24 hours a day, seven days a week. He's being treated like a common criminal and yet he has committed no crime. He is being persecuted for his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is just not unpopular with the Roman citizens, but it's even more unpopular with his Jewish contemporaries. So you could clearly uh, state here that he is in probably one of the most abased positions of his entire life. And because in and, and these words that he has written to the church in, in Philippi, they are so accurate and they are so heartfelt because he knows from what he's speaking, he's experiencing it right at that moment. He's living it. You know, when I look back on my life, just starting out after leaving the shelter and the comfort of my parents' home, I was living in some pretty meager conditions. And unless you come from a home that of a family that has means constantly sending you unlimited amounts of cash, I think we probably all experienced that at one time in our life, didn't we? But as we matured 
And as we worked hard and we kept our focus and we began to earn more money and we started carrying more responsibilities in the workplace, all of that worked toward increasing our standard of living. And when all that was happening, it was, it was pretty easy to be somewhat content because we were going places, we were moving forward, we weren't moving backwards. We could see that things were getting better for us and not worse. But just try doing that in reverse. Try starting out in life with great affluence and great wealth and then lose it all. It's a completely different story. When the Great Depression hit America, many wealthy people who overnight lost the majority of their wealth, they were so dramatically affected by it that they took their own lives. We saw a, a, a lesser amount of that in 2008 when we entered the real estate crash and when the market completely crashed and our, the values of our home were cut in half. People were taking their own lives during that time due to financial ruin, not being able to, to deal with this dramatic change in their financial portfolio. So when you were going in reverse, you can clearly see how contentment can be an extremely elusive virtue. And yet here is Paul, having experienced this, this, this very thing, but he can still proclaim, I have learned to be content in all circumstances. And as I was studying, I find the most interesting words that, that he used were, I have learned. And this is gonna be the crux of our message this morning. I have learned in whatever state I am in to be content. Can you say that about yourself this morning? Paul did, and his words would indicate that contentment is a learned state. So if we're not content, we can actually learn to be content. We learn to walk, we learn to read, we learned how to write. So can we learn to be content? Absolutely. But learning to be content is, it, is in difficult circumstances really is a spiritual exercise. It can only happen when we come to the end, the absolute end of ourselves. When we come to the point where we can finally submit our lives completely and fully to God. When we place ourselves under the authority of God's word and under the direction of the Holy Spirit. And understand this kind of contentment is active. It is not passive. It feels the full range of, of human emotions, yet it remains in control and it remains self-satisfied. And most importantly, it drives you to continue pursuing your life's purpose regardless of your present circumstances. The contentment that Paul speaks about here must be based on something far beyond the temporary world in which we live. It must have the foundation of something eternal, something strong, something that is unchanging, something that can be trusted even when life turns bitter and when it turns tragic. You know, the definition for the Greek word used here for contentment means to be self-sufficient, not needing assistance from the outside. And what Paul is saying is, as I walk with Jesus Christ, he is sufficient in and for all things. Therefore, I need no other assistance. And he strengthens me to do what it is that, that he has called me to do. 
and I can live my life in a way, regardless of my circumstances, that I can fulfill the purpose of my very existence and bring God the glory because he has made his power available to me so that I can do what honors him in any and all situations. My life is no longer controlled by what happens around me, but controlled by the Holy Spirit inside of me. I may not like what's happening, he says. I might prefer something else to be happening. My emotions might even be running strong, but I am no longer a thermostat that fluctuates with the changing temperature through, through my predictable or sinful responses. Instead, I affect my environment by demonstrating a Christ-like character in all situations. This is what Paul learned throughout his life. This is what he learned throughout his ministry. And he was able to exhibit this in all things. He learned contentment. He was able to live in contentment through the strength and through the power and through the guidance of the Holy Spirit. So I wanna spend a few minutes and talk about how we learn to be content because he says it is a learned state. I wanna share four truths, truths with you that I believe the Apostle Paul lived by. And if we were to do the same, it would teach us how to truly be content in all things. Here's the first one. You must have an eternal outlook. I believe at times when we lack commitment, it's because we lose sight of what's important and we can easily lose our way. When Brooke was just a little girl, I coached her softball team. You talk about losing sight of what's important. <laughs> I had to often yell out to the field of the girls, girls, get your head in the game. Because while the game was going on, they played with their hair. They chased butterflies. They plucked up the dandelions and were smelling them. And they were watching the games that were going on on each side of them. They weren't paying attention to the one that they were in. They were distracted by many things. They forgot that they were in the middle of a game and, and they became oblivious to the fact that the game goes on whether they're paying attention or not. And in real life, we can become just like those little girls if we're not careful. My daughter, she was, no, it's not her, she was like this. Gotcha, girl. Her dad taught her to keep her head in the game, so she'd have heard from me if she didn't. So anyway, we can be just like those girls. We can get caught up in, in the entanglements of life if we're not careful. And we can get wrapped up in, in pursuing the kinds of things that are nice, the kinds of things that, that make our life easier, the kinds of things that grant us more free time, provide us with more personal comfort, but they hold absolutely no eternal value. And this is a very easy trap to fall into. I know this as well as anyone, because sometimes it is hard thinking in eternal terms when the only reality we know is the immediate, the here and now. And therefore, the here and now is what gets our greatest level of attention. It's what gets our greatest level of effort. So we get caught up on doing and succeeding and, and working and striving and obtaining 
and our focus on those things that are only temporary, while Christ has called us to think about those things that are eternal. Paul understood this. He even writes about it in 2 Corinthians 4.18. He says, while we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary. That's the here and now. But the things which are not seen are eternal. That's what we're going to receive in heaven. Paul understood that life on this earth was a vapor. The Bible says we are a mist. And all that really matters is the treasures that we are storing up for ourselves in heaven. Though we are finite beings, we have an infinite or an eternal soul and spirit, and therefore we all have to do a reality check every once in a while. Does my life look anything like the life of a person who is focused on eternity and concerned with what I can accomplish for God's kingdom? You see, on that that judgment day, every one of us is going to face God and he will look at us and he will either say, well done, good and faithful servant, or he will say, depart from me. I knew you not. I can't think of any more staggering words that a human being could ever hear than hearing those words come from the lips of God. So Jesus asks us this day, do you ever think about your brother's spiritual condition? Are you concerned with all the dire needs that this single mom you know of three has against her every single day? Do you concern yourself with your friend's addiction that he can't seem to break free from? Are you concerned about your friends who are contemplating a divorce and who desperately need a godly influence in their life to maybe change their thinking? And I think he also asks, are you thinking at all about the day when I'm going to return? And what it really boils down to is found in Matthew 6, 33. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. If we would simply learn to start living our life with that in mind, we wouldn't have to strive. We wouldn't have to to achieve. We wouldn't have to obtain in order to to try to uh, uh, grasp some kind of of a false contentment. We could live life being fully content in those things that shall be added unto us as we seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness first. And so Paul, though maybe he didn't have everything that his heart desired, he was content in knowing that he was doing the Lord's work. He had an eternal mindset which allowed him to be content in the eternal work that he was accomplishing. Secondly, we must fear the Lord. There are many ideas of what it means to fear the Lord, but at the very core of the fear of the Lord is reverence, and it is, it is awe. And Paul clearly lived in both reverence and awe of our Heavenly Father. No one had a more dramatic conversion than Paul. I mean, during his Damascus Road experience, Jesus spoke to him directly. His life went from being a persecutor of the early New Testament church to being one of the greatest forces within the early church of Jesus Christ. He saw and he experienced God's power in so many miraculous and and dramatic ways. There was no way that he could feel anything but awe and reverence. And it was the fear of the Lord that allowed him to learn contentment. 
The scriptures are loaded with examples of what the fear of the Lord provides. I'm not gonna tell you the scriptures, I'm just gonna tell you what the fear of the Lord provides from the scriptures. Wisdom, knowledge, understanding, prolonged days, strong confidence, the fountain of life. All of those are attached to the fear of the Lord. In Isaiah 33, six, the second part of that verse, it says the fear of the Lord is his treasure. In Proverbs 19, 23, it says the fear of the Lord leads to life. Then one rests content, untouched by trouble. If anyone knew trouble, believe me when I tell you, it was the apostle Paul. And yet through all of his troubles, he was untouched by them, just like the scripture says. This wisdom and knowledge and understanding and strong confidence, those words that I mentioned to you, they were all granted to Paul. It was developed through his reverence and love of the Lord. And therefore, Paul was able to rest in contentment in whatever circumstance he found himself. And it granted him the ability to write so many of these famous words. Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Philippians 2.14, do all things without complaining and disputing. Philippians 3, 1 and 2, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Philippians 3.8, yet indeed I count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. Philippians 3.13 and 14, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching toward those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Philippians 3.20, for our citizenship is in heaven from which we so eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Philippians 4, 8, finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. These are all inspired words from a man who has had his eyes upon the eternal and not on the temporary. He realized that life on this earth was short. He understood that the only thing that really mattered, the only thing that brought him real satisfaction were those things that he did for eternity. And all those words that I just shared with you could only be written by one who had clearly learned that in whatever state he found himself, he would be content. Here's the third point. We must avoid the love of money. First Timothy 6, 6 through 10, Paul writes this. Now godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we carry nothing out. And having food and clothing with, all, with these, we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Many misquote this scripture and they they say that money is the root of all evil, when it clearly says the love of money is the root of all evil. There There is a big difference there. Money in and of itself is not evil. It's what you do with money. It's how money drives you. It's if money possesses you. 
But the love of money causes us to have terrible troubles. As mentioned earlier, Paul at one time knew what it was like to be affluent. But his thinking has completely changed. His mindset has now gone into a totally different direction. Money or the love of it is one of the furthest things now from his mind because he understands anything gained in this world is simply a temporary gain. He knows that no matter what is accomplished in this life, the only thing going on with him to eternity is what he has accomplished for the Lord. Paul also writes in 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19, command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good, that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to serve, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. In this life, we can build up a financial portfolio that will assure us a pleasant life, a pleasant retirement without concerns for financial hardship. And there are scriptures that tell us that we need to take care of our families. There are scriptures that tell us to leave an inheritance for our children. But when this exceeds, when this drive exceeds everything else, it becomes unhealthy. This is when we fail to do what 1 Timothy 6.6 6 says, temptation and traps and into foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. When our love for our fellow man and their eternal souls, when our love for others' welfare exceeds our personal uh, love of money, it doesn't matter what figure income you have. It doesn't matter what kind of car you drive or how, much, how many square foot your home is. When you are doing the will of God and when you are investing into the lives of other people and you are reaching people for the Lord Jesus Christ, there is no contentment to be found quite like it. It overshadows absolutely everything else. This is the kind of contentment that, that far eclipses fortune and prestige, and affluence, and honor, and any other descriptive that you might want to throw out there. Paul learned it. Paul experienced it, and Paul lived it. Well, my last point is that we must know our identity in Christ, and I know you're saying, well, that was one of your points last week, Pastor David. Yes, it was. So you can see why I believe it's so important. Most of us know about Paul's incredible Damascus Road experience and how it was probably one of the more dramatic conversions that perhaps you've read from, read about. But let me remind every one of you in this room who know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, your conversion was no less dramatic than his. Anytime Jesus enters a life and he transforms it, it is a dramatic, life-altering, mind-bending endeavor, period. In fact, it's one of those things that people who have no faith can't even wrap their minds around. They can't even comprehend it. The simple truth is once we know Jesus Christ and once we walk in his truth and in his power, there is really nothing more to concern ourselves with. When we know who we are in Christ, we can begin to understand what it is that we inherit as children of the Most High God. We can begin to grasp that, that life on this earth is nothing more 
but a blip on the radar screen of eternity when we realize that we are spiritual beings walking a very short earthly mission that depending on the grace of God may last 30, 50, 60, 90, 85, 100 years. That's how you can begin to think in terms of contentment because no matter where you are in this life, whether you, you are abased or whether you are abounding, you know that there is something greater. There is something that follows these earths, these years here on earth that make this temporary existence of ours seem so ridiculously short and so unimportant. And you know what? I'm just going to say this. I am to the point in my life at my age where that becomes my viewpoint more and more. And I think those of you who are my age and older, you really understand that even more. The older we get, the more we realize the truth of what I'm sharing with you. When you're young and you've got your whole life ahead of you, it's sometimes hard to take on that kind of a mindset. But I'm telling you, those who you are young, you're going to be my age before you blink. I mean, it's going to turn around and you're going to be as old as me. And you go, where'd, all my, where'd it go? That's life. That's the way it is. It shows us how the Apostle Paul can speak in the terms that he did because he understood that life was fleeting. He understood that it was short. He understood his life was a mist. That's how he learned to walk through this life and to be content in all circumstances because Paul learned something we need to grasp. There's absolutely nothing on this earth that can bring true contentment. You can spend your entire life trying to find it and you will come up short. That's just a fact. True contentment can only come through a covenant relationship with Jesus Christ, the very one who provides the abundant life that brings true contentment. And here's the entire truth of this message today in verse 13. Paul writes one of the most recognized scriptures in the Bible. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Every one of us in this room have spoken those words a thousand times whenever we were facing a variety of challenges. For Christians, this is our go-to verse. This is our go-to verse that, that brings us hope because we realize that there is nothing we cannot do when we are empowered by God. But isn't it interesting that the Apostle Paul wrote these words specifically in the context of being content? Yes, we apply this scripture to all things, but it was written with regard to contentment. He is saying, I can do all things, especially and specifically being content through Christ who gives me the strength to do so. On our own and through our own strength and our own human understanding, we are incapable of living in contentment because there is definitely, as I said, a spiritual element to contentment. The only way you and I can hope to find it is through the power of the Holy Spirit at work within our lives. Therefore, as disciples of Christ, we cannot afford to be sidetracked any longer by our carnal wants and our carnal desires. And we must make sure that our hunger and our thirst for Jesus Christ and his righteousness exceeds our hunger and our thirst for earthly gain and for earthly possessions. We can get, when we can get to that point, we will begin to embrace and we will begin to live 
by Paul's writings, and I might add his, his deepest belief that he wrote in verse 11, for I have learned in whatever state I am in to be content. When you, you can honestly speak those words and really mean them, you will no longer think, feel, or ever say again, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Because Jesus Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit in your life is what brings contentment. The contentment that every single one of us seeks in our life. Scott, will you and the worship team please come forward and help me to close this down. Today we are going to participate in the Lord's Supper together. Or as we commonly refer to it, communion. And I believe it's very important and I think it's very, very appropriate that we are doing this today in light of this topic of contentment. Because as I said earlier, I believe it is impossible to be content without being in a redemptive relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Until you allow Jesus lordship over your life, you'll never understand that, that it is he who brings about true contentment in your life. And this time of communion serves several purposes. First of all, we are commanded to partake in communion together and be reminded of the ultimate sacrifice that Jesus made for us on the cross of Calvary. And of course, as we remember, we give thanks and, and we rejoice over the gift of salvation that, that, that he has given us and the promise of eternal life that he offers in the presence of Almighty God. It helps us to keep into perspective the eternal blessings that we receive by being redeemed by the blood of Jesus and how that, that the things of this life are, are just fleeting and are truly unimportant when compared to our eternal future. But communion can also serve as a time to bring others into faith, into a faith relationship with Jesus who maybe up to this point have not done that. And we're gonna discuss more about that in a minute. But first, we're gonna have the ushers come forward and we're gonna pass out the communion emblems. Communion is one of the ordinances of the church and it is intended to be taken by those who know Christ Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And when I say those who know Christ, I mean they have given him lordship over their lives. And the Bible offers us clear instruction on how to participate during this time of communion in a worthy manner. In 1 Corinthians 11, 27 and 29, it says, therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself not discerning the Lord's body. This is a warning to everyone that before we take communion, we all need to examine our own lives, our own hearts. We need to make sure that the way that we are living doesn't make our participation in this sacred moment to be something that we will be doing in an unworthy way. In other words, is there unconfessed sin in your life that you need to confess to God? If so, you need to confess it. Are you harboring ill will? Are you harboring unforgiveness towards another? 
If so, you need to ask forgiveness for that and you need to leave her with the intention of clearing up that ill will and, and that unforgiveness. Or have you just become calloused regarding the things of God? He doesn't get any time, any thought throughout the day. You don't care about his design for how you live your life at all. Well, these are all questions that, that we need to answer, but more importantly, not just answer those questions honestly, but act upon them, both Christians and those who have yet become a Christian. So before we enter into communion together, we always take time to make sure things are right between us and God. Like that song we sang this morning, it is well with my soul. You want to go into communion knowing that it is well with your soul. We, have a, we always have a time of quiet reflection and quiet prayer to God. I used to pray during this time. I decided to Pray silently so that you could pray. You wouldn't listen to anything that I'm saying, but you could, com you could communicate with God in your own words and in your own way. Because none of us want to eat and drink judgment upon ourselves or be guilty of the body or the blood of the Lord by entering into communion with our hearts not being right. So let me just make very, very clear. Unless you've already received salvation through Jesus Christ or prepared to do so this morning, please don't participate in communion and avoid doing this in an unworthy manner. So I want every head bowed and every eye closed. All you are gonna hear for the next several minutes is the music playing softly behind me. If you've never received salvation, all you need to do to receive this free gift that Jesus offers is to do what the Bible says in Romans 10 verses nine and 10. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. While we pray, you can pray a prayer of confession and belief, and God will save you, and you can have a fresh lease on life. God will forgive you of your sins. The Bible says you become a new creation. And for those who are already in a relationship with Jesus, you should be praying to God in your own way and in your own words. Confess any sin that's been unconfessed up to this point. Ask God to forgive you. Bring anything to the Lord that you need to confess or that you need to acknowledge. If we all do this this morning, every one of us will participate in communion in a worthy manner. So let's spend some time in quiet prayer and meditation to the Lord. Father, you have read our hearts and you've heard our words. We thank you for the forgiveness of sin. We thank you for your tremendous love, for your amazing grace. We also thank you, Lord, that true contentment can be found in you and nowhere else. I pray that we will quit looking at other places, but we will look directly to you. Father, during this communion time, I pray you bless these emblems we're about to receive. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. On the night that Jesus was betrayed and arrested, later on to be crucified, he had one final meal with his disciples and he took the bread and he broke it and he gave thanks to God for it. The breaking of the bread was representative of his body which would soon be broken. The Bible tells us that he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And it goes on to say that by his stripes,
the beating that he took, we are healed. So when he breaks the bread, he gives a piece to each one of his disciples and he says, this is my body, which is broken for you. Whenever you do this, do so in remembrance of me. So as you eat the bread, I want you to be reminded of the bruised and battered body that was sacrificed for you and the stripes he bore for your healing. You may eat the bread. In the same way he took the cup, which represented his blood that would soon be spilled. It's the same blood that would atone for your and my sin and the sin for the entire world. And he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And as often as you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. So as you drink the juice, I want you to be reminded of the precious blood that poured out of the body of the sinless Son of God, the Lamb of God, for the forgiveness of sin. You may drink the juice. You all stand to your feet. We're going to sing. I cast my mind to Calvary where Jesus bled and died for me. I see his wounds, his hands, his feet, my Savior on that cursed tree. His body bound and drenched in tears, they lay him down. by heavy stone Messiah still and all
Since we talked about contentment, I would like to pray a prayer of contentment over you. You can take these words, take them into your spirit. Maybe if you're nice, you call the office. I'll even send you a copy of this. You can pray it every day. Let's bow our heads. I'll pray over you. Father, your word says that godliness with contentment is great gain. So today we come to you seeking both. Make our hearts pure so that we may seek you above all other things. Give us a desire for those things that are important to you and not to us and help us to be able to discern the difference. Show us that whether we live in abundance or in need, you are there with us and you are what we truly need. Let us realize that things break and wear out and our possessions don't last, but you, O oh Lord, are eternal. You are the greatest thing we could ever attain in this life, so let us learn to be content in you. Help us, Father, to focus on those things of eternal value and not those things which are fleeting and keep our hearts and our minds and our eternal spirit ever entwined with yours. Contentment is our desire, so make us one with you, Lord, so we can clearly see that what we seek can only be found in you, in Jesus' name. And Lord, I pray as we go our separate ways today that your Holy Spirit would guide and direct our steps. The things we do, the places we go, the conversations that we have, let them be conversations that build up and not tear down. And Father, let us shine as bright lights in a very dark world, so much so that people could not help but ask, what is it that's different about us? And that we could tell them it's the love of God in our heart. And then Father, that you would open doors for us to share your goodness with someone else. I pray today, Lord, for a divine encounter for every one of us this week. Give us an opportunity to tell someone about your goodness and invite them to church with us. And I pray, Lord, that between now and the next time we gather, that you would keep us safe from sickness, from disease, keep us safe from any accidents that would befall us until we come together and worship you again. And Father, while I'm praying, I also pray over the food we're about to receive in the gymnasium. I thank you for this opportunity to get together as a family. Pray that you'll bless this food, the hands that prepared it. Give us a great time of fellowship. We ask these things in Jesus' name. We thank you for this day. We thank you for the joy that we've experienced in your presence. And we thank you for what is to come. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Thank you for being here.